my gosh. Thanks for coming. I've got a very um, profesh folder that I decorated last night for you. Went to Kmart at about 9pm <laughs> to set that up. Okay, truth bomb time, as if I ever do anything else. Um, I've been panicking for months that this talk is going to reveal to everyone that I'm a complete fraud. Um, so they came to me and said, do you want to give a talk at the Opera House? And I was like, are you kidding? Like, hold on while I call everyone I know and, and shove it in their face. <laughs> Anyone who's ever wronged me can get fucked. Um, and then they said, oh, we want it to be on how to be yourself. And I just instantly freaked out because I realised, oh, like, they think I know. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and I'm going to get there and I'm going to give a talk to a bunch of paying audience members on how to be myself and I have no fucking idea. <laughs> um, and I feel like I can just tick off saying the F word on stage at the Opera House off my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this is a problem for me since just a few months ago. I published a memoir called The Anti-Cool Girl, which basically outlines my journey to self-acceptance and figuring out how to be myself. I wrote about being born to addicted and mentally ill parents who forced my sisters and I into a childhood filled with neglect and, neglect and abuse and trauma. My sisters, they're just here in the front row. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> um, I wrote about how that affected my sense of self, and belonging and how I became convinced that if I just managed to sneak my way in the cool crowd, I'd feel loved and accepted. And then the final chapter of my book explored my mid-twenties awakening in which I realized that I was enough and I just needed to care less and do what feels right and fist pump nailing it and I know how to be myself, hooray. Um, and then you all paid to come here and hear me talk about it. And I'm terrified to have to stand here and admit to you that um, Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I read that chapter and I really do feel like it's full of crap. Um, but if you've already bought the book, like, no takesies, backsies. Um, the thing is, I do know that to be yourself, you have to have a sense of who you are. But I change my mind about who I am on a daily basis. I mean, some days I read that chapter about self-discovery in my book and I think, God, Rosie, like, you are so freaking wise. Like... <laughs> You are just white Oprah. Like, you, <laughs> you are so profound. Like, no wonder your book is doing so well. And then other days I read that chapter and I think, you suck, you liar. Like, you care what people think. You cried reading your Twitter notifications yesterday. Like, you're such a fraud. <laughs> and so now I'm standing here talking to you and I'm terrified everyone is going to figure out um, that I'm a big fraud and liar. <laughs> Um, if you came here based on my book thinking I can give you a magic formula on how to be yourself, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give that to you. But if I am going to admit that, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm doing and possibly ruin my career, I might as well do it, you know, in like a flower crown and a tutu. <laughs> um, here's what I do know. Having a clear sense of self and sticking to it is easy in theory. But maintaining that sense of self in the face of just life and reality can often feel almost impossible. I mean, it's one thing to try and follow the philosophies of leaning in or, um, you know, the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck or being an anti-cool girl. That one's thanks to me. But what about the days where you, you just can't, like where leaning in feels exhausting and you kind of really do give a fuck and even though you're meant to be an anti-cool girl 
you kind of really do care if the cool kids like you. I mean, I have days like that all the time, days where I just can't live up to the person I'm supposed to be or the person I wish I was, and it often makes me feel like a total failure. So I want to give you an example now of a time recently where I got really confused about who I was. Monique mentioned it very briefly. Um, I had an existential identity crisis slash extended brain fart. <laughs> this was when I put a naked photo of myself on the internet. <laughs> I actually haven't spoken about it publicly since I did it, and I just said it now, and I think, you crazy bitch. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. <laughs> Which is actually what a lot of people thought, too. Um, my mum thought I was drunk, because <laughs> the post went up on my Facebook quite late, and... Um, and that really offended me because I said, like, I wrote, like, what I thought was a really, like, articulate and well-thought-out critique about feminism and body image. And my mum was like, oh, like, I don't know. It went up at, like, midnight, so I just figured you were pissed. <laughs> I was like, yeah, thanks, mum. <laughs> um, which, um, she wasn't the only one. A lot of people demanded to know about that photo. And when I say people, I mean women. I mean, there were a few dudes who like told me to put my saggy tits away, but it was mostly women who felt the need to tell me that, you know, they either thought what I did was brilliant or they thought it was like an eye roll inducing embarrassment. Um, I was shocked at that level of reaction um, because I know I have an a large online following, so a lot of people that's, think that's disingenuous of me to say, but I honestly just thought that when I put up that post, it was kind of a boring rant about, you know, body image and, and, and feminism, and maybe a few hundred people on my page would like it, and Facebook would probably take the photo down anyway because, you know, women's nipples are more offensive than hate groups. So I just put it on my social media channels and then just went to bed. Um, cut to the next day and my naked body was a nationally trending topic of conversation. Um, and the honest truth is, I, I was fucking mortified. I was so embarrassed. Um, I was approached by a lot of media asking me to explain myself, and I sort of came up with this very dignified response. I was like, I'm not going to talk about it because um, I don't want to fuel the conversation. My body's not the most important thing about me. Like, like yeah, that's, like, true. But also, I was like, there's my naked bodies everywhere. No, I don't want to talk about it. Like, I don't want to come on your show and, and be interviewed, like, while my boobs are 10 foot high on a screen behind me. Like, that's crazy talk. I mean, I'm the first to admit that I, you know, I actively, you know, naively, inadvertently put myself in that position. I put the photo up. Um, but the vulnerability I was feeling that day was of my own making. But the vulnerability, it wasn't just about the fact that there was this photo of my body everywhere. It was also about my thought process and the fact that I had made a pretty definitive statement about who I was and something that I stood for. And then I really started to question it. I mean, despite having put what I insisted to my mum was an incredibly moving and articulate piece that she should read about body image next to the photo, it sort of didn't matter what I had written because it got to this point where women were just telling each other what I meant by it anyway. So I kept reading all these things, you know, arguing whether I was brave or whether I was an insufferable idiot and Rosie meant to say this and no, she didn't, she's a fool. She meant to say this, tell her to shut up. And then I was just like, I don't know what I meant to say anymore. Like, I'm confused. And so I can tell you that initially I posted the photo for the following reason. I'm a big girl, 
and my body has been through a lot. I mean, I grew up always quite thin and then just for a bunch of reasons, I gained a lot of weight in my early 20s and then I lost a lot of that weight. So my body's kind of ended up in this weird, looks like I've had a baby, but I haven't mode. Like I'm, I've got like stretch marks and, you know, I've, I've, I've got like a belly that I'll never get rid of and, and I've like got really stretchy skin. I can, I can actually kind of basically grab like the skin on my boobs and stretch it up to my skin. <laughs> I mean, to my chin, like, I really, like, I'd show you, but, like, we're in the opera house, let's keep it classy, but, um, you know, my body is by, I actually have showed my flatmate, he's sitting right there, we tested it, <laughs> I was like, whoa, um, <laughs> my body, my body is, by conventional standards, not by everybody's, but by conventional standards for women, considered seriously flawed. Like, I'm told by society in a million different ways every day that I'm disgusting. And I've got to be honest with you, that really paralysed me for a while. It did. I hid myself away and kind of took myself out of the game. I took myself out of life. Because I, like a lot of women, had spent my life hinging my self-worth on my appearance without even realising it. And the incredibly dangerous thing about hinging your self-esteem on your appearance is you might as well be hinging it on a house of cards. Like, no matter what you inject into your face or no matter how obsessively you work out or how restrictive you are with what you put in your mouth, your appearance will change. You will age. I mean, this is depressing, but your face is ageing right now, right this second. Your body is ageing right now. Um, gravity is taking its toll right now. Things can happen. I gained weight unexpectedly. And if you have invested all of your self-worth on the house of cards that is your aesthetic appeal, that house of cards is eventually going to topple and you will end up feeling worthless. Now, gaining weight in my early 20s is what made my house of cards topple, and I did feel like a worthless piece of shit. But that led to something really incredible happening for me. I no longer had my appearance to fall back on to feel value, so I had to start looking for other things that I valued about myself. And building a new scaffolding of self-esteem not based around my looks was incredibly liberating for me. I started to place more value on my intelligence, on my talent as a writer, on my ability to be a fierce and loyal friend, on my sense of humour, on the love I have for my sisters, on the fact that I survived a pretty horrific childhood and came out quite successful the other side of it. And when I started valuing those things, I suddenly remembered that I had a right to exist in the universe, and not just to exist, but in spite of my body, I had a right to be successful and to kick ass. And I would never have realised that if I was still convinced that my body and my appearance were the most important things about me. Now, does that mean I don't care about looks at all? Of course not. I mean, look at what I'm wearing, for Christ's sake. I get eyelash extensions every three weeks. <laughs> um, I love dressing up. I love makeup. I truly believe in the transformative power of fashion, especially for plus-size girls. But those things just got pushed lower down my values list because spending so long with them at the top of my list just ended up with me feeling worthless. And so, having lived all of that, I started to get really sad when I saw women far thinner than me, far more conventionally attractive than me, 
be so obsessive and hung up on their bodies and their appearance. I mean, 18-year-olds are getting lip fillers and Botox and breast implants. Wellness warriors are posting photos of Instagram where they pinch, like, a roll of skin, like, this big, and they hashtag it, like, imperfections. <laughs> like, talk to me when your stomach's so big you can't see your vagina. Then let's talk about what society <laughs> considers imperfect. <laughs> My 13-year-old niece looks up to Kendall Jenner, who seems like a lovely girl, but she openly admits that the one thing she's ever dreamed for herself since she was a little kid was to be a Victoria's Secret angel. Um, Cindy Crawford, one of the most physically, genetically blessed people on the planet, announced recently that she was retiring from being professionally photographed at only 50 to pass the torch to her 14-year-old daughter. Even George Clooney a couple of days ago said he probably won't act in movies much longer because nobody wants to see him get old. So I posted a naked photo of myself. <laughs> Just to say, you know what? Like, I have a body that society tells me is disgusting. Here's a photo just to prove it. Society tells me that as a woman, this body that you're looking at should make me feel worthless. But I don't. And not because I unequivocally love my body. I don't. I, I have issues, you know, with my body image like everyone else. But because I value other things about myself and I just put up that photo to say, I really encourage you to try it because it's been so liberating for me. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> that, however, was not what a lot of people took from the post, and that's when I pretty much had a 24-hour long brain fart. So, First of all, a lot of women were complimenting me for being so brave, <laughs> which I understand the intention behind that, but, like, nobody's telling Miranda Kerr she's brave for getting naked. So I was like, basically what you're saying is, like, your body is not attractive, so it's, like, really brave that you're putting it all out there. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I would have really preferred if you'd told me to put it away because I was too sexy, but thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> Then a lot of women were congratulating me on being a bigger woman who was proud of her body and who wasn't afraid to flaunt it. And that also wasn't right because I have incredibly ambivalent feelings about my body. Like some days, you know, I feel sexy. Other days I cry about my fat upper pussy area. So I'm not comfortable being labeled a body image crusader, you know? But the point is on the days where I do cry about my fupa, I don't feel worthless. That, that can be credited to Lena Dunham. She invented the, um, the um, fupa. Um, well, she didn't invent it. She just gave it a name. <laughs> I'm sure mine's a lot bigger than hers as well. Um, but the point is, on the days where I do cry, I don't feel worthless because I've learned to value other things. But then I thought, is that the point? Like, is that what I meant? Like, everyone was saying all this stuff. I was like, I'm confused. I don't know what I meant anymore. And then other women were really angry that I'd shown you know, a photo of my body at all. There was a lot of comments, like a post about how bodies shouldn't be, shouldn't, aren't the most important thing, shouldn't include a photo of your body. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's, it made sense to me at the time, but my mum was right. It was almost midnight and, oh, God, I don't know, like, maybe you're right. I'm the worst. Like, <laughs> And then some women were angry that I'd said looks don't matter, yet I was wearing makeup in the photo and there's a filter on the photo and first of all, I wasn't wearing makeup. That was the eyelash extension. So that critique just made me feel really pretty. Um, <laughs> and with the filter, I was like, of course I put a filter on it. Like, I was putting a naked photo of myself on the internet. Like, give me a damn break. Jesus. Like, I just didn't want to have under eye circles. Um, 
And, you know, I'm pretty sure I didn't say that looks don't matter at all. I just said they're not the most important thing. But then I was like, did I say that? I don't even know. I mean, is my name even Rosie? And <laughs> then there were just a lot of women online eye-rolling at me who just, you know, just thought I was lame and wanted me to shut up. The worst was... Um, a tweet from a female comedian who I actually really like. And the worst thing about female comedians is when they burn you, it's really funny, so it's hard to get mad. And she, I'm paraphrasing here, I can't remember exactly, but she tweeted something like, finally feeling brave enough to um, reveal this part of myself. And then underneath it, she just had um, a photo, like an x-ray photo of her uterus. <laughs> and I was like, damn it, that hurts my feelings. That's a really solid burn. That's a really good joke. <laughs> So, at the end of a very bizarre 24 hours in which my naked body had gone viral because of, fair enough, a photo I'd posted myself, I was so confused about why I had done it. The Daily Mail even wrote an article about me having done it because I loved and looked up to some blogger who I'd never even heard of, but then I was like, have I heard of her? Maybe she's my best friend. I'm so confused. Like, I just didn't, I lost all sense of myself. Million, um, w women loved it for a million different reasons. They hated it for a million different reasons. And I was taking all of that on board and it was overwhelming what had been a really clear message in my head to begin with. The problem also was that Facebook usually take down photos like that immediately and a lot of people were reporting it and apparently there was some glitch in the system so the photo stayed up for 24 hours. Like, <laughs> I like to think there was some feminist at Facebook who was like, oh, it's not working, I don't, it's not coming down. I don't. <laughs> but the point is, it was up for long enough that the comments and the, and the conversation around it kind of reached this critical mass and I was feeling incredibly vulnerable, not just because a naked photo of me had reached six million people, but because I was so overwhelmed by the response to it that I wasn't even confident about why I had put it up in the first place. And that's when I started to feel like a fraud. You know, I'm meant to be the anti-cool girl, I'm meant to know who I am and never question it, I get asked to give talks like this, and I'm not meant to care what anyone thinks, and then I put up that photo and I was questioning everything. I mean, you know, I spent a long time with a body image specialist, like, figuring out all that stuff I just told you, and then I was like, shut the fuck up about card houses and, and fragility and body image. Like, you don't know anything, you idiot, and Stephanie Williams from Brisbane is right. Like, you're, you should have taken the photo from a less flattering angle if you meant it, and I just, like, didn't. <laughs> I, could, I got so lost in it. So I really mean it when I say that having a clear sense of self is easy in theory, but maintaining it when things get hard, when things get tough, is the hard part. And I fail at it all the time, even in important moments when I shouldn't, like when I try to make a statement by putting a naked photo of myself on the internet, or when I get asked to come and give talks on how to be myself and forget that I have no idea how to be myself. So, what do we do then? I mean, if I'm meant to be the expert and I'm standing here telling you, lol, sorry, nah, I'm a fraud, I don't know anything, then what do we do? How do we figure out who we are and spend every day being ourselves when life gives us so many conflicting rules to follow, particularly as women? I mean, 
waxing your pubes is relenting to the patriarchy versus waxing your pubes is a powerful example of the autonomy you have over your own body. Or don't read women's magazines or you'll be betraying the sisterhood. 24 steaming hot ways to keep him happy in bed is an embarrassment to us all versus women's magazines provide a much needed and important platform for women. 24 steaming hot ways to keep him happy in bed allows women to talk openly about sex. Don't eat sugar or carbs. Carbs, sugar is death and carbs are the devil. Take pride in your health versus eat whatever you want because crazy diets are a multi-billion dollar industry to, designed to keep women in a food prison. <laughs> Don't put off having kids in case your junk goes bad and your eggs die. You aren't a real woman unless you have kids. Every period is a wasted opportunity. <laughs> Versus concentrate on your career instead of kids because that's what a man would do. Every period just gets rid of another egg that would have ruined your life. <laughs> You're only sexualizing yourself because the patriarchy forced you to versus celebrating your sexuality however you want is brave and empowering. Bitch is an offensive word to women, don't use it. Bitch is an empowering word to women, use it. Free the nipple versus don't free the nipple. That's just admitting that your body is the most important thing about you. Don't be such a slave to men's visual expectations. If we're going to call ourselves feminists, we need women to support other women versus men aren't expected to support each other all the time. Women should be able to criticize each other without it being about feminism. Or this is my favorite. Don't say vagina, say vulva. Not understanding the correct terminology for your body is an embarrassment to your gender. <laughs> Versus, it's your genitalia. Call that special place beef curtains, lady garden, fish taco, fanny blaze, whatever the hell you want. <laughs> Just make sure you say it all the time because real women always talk about vaginas. <laughs> oh, and speaking of real women, be a real woman. Just don't be too fat or too skinny, or too sexy, or too prudish, or too aggressive, or too passive. Be a role model for all other women, but be modest enough to never think that you're a role model. <laughs> have it all, but also admit that it's impossible to have it all, and don't screw any of this up. <laughs> Seriously, where the fuck does that leave us, really? In the face of all that conflicting noise, how are we supposed to figure out not only who we are, but how to remain true to that at all times? I don't know, and I know you came here because I meant to know, but I don't know. The best I can offer you is this. Have an idea of who you'd like to be and aim for that, but always embrace failure, which I'm helpfully providing you an example with right now by not giving you the advice you came here for. I know who I want to be, and sometimes I'm great at it. Other times I'm not even close. I mean, I want to not care what other people think. I want to not be heartbroken that I haven't found lasting love yet. I want to be confident in my opinions and never waver. I want to not send boys crazy texts when they upset me. God, I've done that a lot, you don't even know. I want to not be sad that Sports Girl doesn't make clothes that fit me. I want to not be upset that I was meant to be on the cover of Spectrum this weekend, but I got bumped for a supermodel slash PhD candidate, Tara Moss. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be bummed for anyone, it's going to be a genius supermodel, but still. <laughs> um, I want to give zero fucks that the, cool, that the cool kids think I'm lame because I don't know any of the songs on Triple J. I want to eternally embrace... Seriously, Triple J never asks me to come on the radio. It feels so lame. <laughs> it's because I don't know any songs. I 
want to eternally embrace that I'm scruffy and shy and I just like drinking vodka on my couch in my underpants, but I even question that one sometimes too and I know that's what you all love most about me. (laughs) I want to always be the anti-cool girl that people think I am, but I don't always get there. I don't. We're often told that having a strong sense of self will keep us on solid ground when life gets difficult, but I think that accepting that your sense of self is bound to falter when life gets difficult is the thing we need to remember. Because it will happen, your sense of self will falter, and we need to not be drowned by feelings of failure every time it does. So embrace the failure. Know who you want to be, but also be okay with not know how to do, how to do that all the damn time. Nobody is going to be perfect at being themselves, not even the people who have written books about it and who get asked to come to the Opera House and speak about it. Let's all just embrace failure. Let's all accept that we can only be perfect at being imperfect. And that's about as close to being as ourselves as I think we're ever going to get. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for that. That was wonderful. Oh, you're so welcome. Now we get to chat. I was so nervous, you guys. Oh, my gosh. I can't even tell you. And then just I was coming out of the green room and I walked past Miranda July and she saw the ridiculous thing I'm wearing and she went, oh, my God. And then I was like, (laughs) and then I had to go right on stage. I was like, oh, God. Anyway, please continue. Totally fine. Um, This is your book, right? Mm -hmm. The Anti-Cool Girl. It's a memoir Mm -hmm. about your life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, You may mm -hmm, even be mm -hmm. signing copies of this out in the foyer later, I I believe. Please buy it. This is a lot of sales in here, so... (laughs) I'd like you to all please buy that. My publisher will be pleased I said that. (laughs) Um, One of the passages that I really loved in this um, was kind of towards the end when you you talk about being cast to play a nude scene in a play. (laughs) Yes. And in this, you basically say that you'd be comfortable showing your vagina but not your belly. Yeah. What does that say about your body image at the time or generally how women are made to feel about their bodies? Um, that's interesting because I've actually talked a lot about this nude scene, uh, that nude scene recently, because I've had the same psychiatrist for like 12 years now. So he walked me through that nude scene 10 years ago and through my nude thing a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, so we were comparing notes. But at the time, um, I'd actually had an eating disorder for not very long when I did that nude scene. I was um, at drama school with my flatmate and Biffle Tony in the front here. Um, and I never really had an issue with my weight or with my appearance or with my body image, really. And then I had a acting teacher who, um, one day I was eating a, a blueberry bagel from um, Gloria Jeans. You know those blueberry bagels that they smother with butter? <laughs> and they're so good. And, um, and she said, she pulled me aside and said, Rosie, I'm really worried about your nutrition. And I'd broken up with uh, my first boyfriend, so I think I'd gained like four or five kilos, not very much, like not enough to even really bother me. And I said, oh, what do you mean? She goes, you know, you're a really talented actress and I'm worried that you're not going to get the parts you deserve um, if you don't, you know, take more care of your nutrition. She kept, nutrition was the code word. Mm -hmm. So we had this conversation and that conversation was sort of um, what kicked off my eating disorder. And from that point, I was um, 
you know, in a cycle of binging and purging. And it um, was not long after that that I had that nude scene in the play and it was a really good part and I tried to act really brave and like I was an actress and um, I was going to do this scene and, and the thing that bothered me most was I had a little, like I think now, like the size of my belly now, back then I can't even believe that I cared, it was like, it was like a size 10 and um, it was this tiny little belly but I was more panicked about being nude on stage about people seeing my belly roll than I was about them seeing my, my vulva. <laughs> Gotta say vulva. Um, because I just was, I'd, I'd was in the throes of, of really struggling with my body image at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of, it's crazy. It's crazy. It? That's how we you know, yeah. feel about ourselves. I know. Jeez. Hey, um, you reveal a lot about your life yeah. in this book. And yeah. it's pretty full on stuff growing up, housing commission, as you mentioned, drug and alcohol addicted parents. You know, there's mental illness, domestic mm. violence, sexual abuse, eating disorders, suicide attempts, like it's, it's pretty full on, but you manage to navigate this with such a, a warmth and sense of humour. Yeah. How important is humour for you in processing everything that you've been through? I honestly just would not know how to do it any other way. I wouldn't. Like I, I've always wanted to write comedy, like ever since I was a little kid I would... Um, I used to record like Roseanne and Seinfeld and stuff on VHS and then play it back and transcribe it in a little notebook. Like, I don't know, like one day I was going to send a script to Hollywood, I don't even know. Like, I, um, and so I always, I think comedy was always an escape for me as a little kid. Um, I also always knew that I would grow up to write my story, but I think it's, it's very true what people say that um, the people who have been pushed to the darkest places are the ones who are often forced to find the light in those places, and mm. that's why I just don't think I could, I could have written this book without, you know, a joke on every page, and it also would have been a bit insufferable if it hadn't been funny. <laughs> would have been like, hard work. <laughs> yeah, it would have been really hard work, like, for you guys to read, not for me, like, God, how boring. Who are some of your favourite comedians today? Today? Um, gosh, Louis C.K., um, Chelsea Handler, Kathy Griffin, um, they're not necessarily stand-up, but um, the Broad City Girls are incredible. Mm -hmm. um, oh my gosh, so many. There's a girl called Jen Fricker. She's a, an Australian, like, Sydney-based comedian. Um, Reese Nicholson, he's also Australian. Mm -hmm. oh my God, please go and see stand-up in Sydney. There's so much of it, and it's really, really good. It's really good. Awesome. Yeah. Um, you do reveal a lot. You even, I think, at one point reveal pooing the bed. Yeah, <laughs> and I said that on ABC Radio this morning. I probably shouldn't have. Um, oh yeah, you know, girls are people. Girls so often in 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 you know pop culture. My sister's just like putting, she's rolling her eyes like, shut up, Rosie. Johnny, just like don't tell it again. <laughs> But women in pop culture and, and, in, and in film and in TV and, and in books, and they're just often portrayed to cater to, you know, men's sensibilities. And I think that's the great thing I love about Broad City and to a lesser extent girls is that it shows women as multifaceted, complex human beings. And that means that they're often gross and they often <laughs> do get drunk and poo the bed and... <laughs> 
call their older sister for help. Like, it's just... And that was the kind of stuff... You know, that stuff's funny. And I will... Maybe it's because I went to drama school. I'll do anything for a laugh. But I just thought that story was really funny. Like, how could I not put that in, you know, the definitive story of my life? Yeah. <laughs> I Fair shot enough. the bed once, you guys, and I was 26. <laughs> Did you decide when you wrote this book that you were just going to put it all out there? You weren't going to hold back? Yeah, I mean, I didn't decide. Like, that's just how I write. So I, it, uh, I wouldn't know how to do it any other way. Like, I, when I um, first, my first professional writing job was at Mamma Mia. And, you know, I had studied creative writing at uni. Um, and most of the girls who were there are, are journalists. And I think they sort of wanted me to, to do that more kind of journalism stuff like they had me writing news for a while and I was just like I don't know guys and and then I just and then they realized you know I just kept writing my own kind of stuff Um, that sounds kind of egotistical now I was like no I'll do what I want things (laughs) like I was a nobody but I just kept writing my own stuff the way that I write and telling my own funny stories and you know and then stuff that I that I really thought would work, like the Bachelor recaps had to convince them to let me do, like I I just, I've always gone with my gut and to me that's just writing all of it, I wouldn't know how to hold back. Cool. Yeah. What was the hardest chapter to write? Hmm, um, That's a good question. I sort of had a bit of a breakdown while writing the whole book actually. Probably the chapter uh, about uh, the night my dad physically abused my grandpa Mm -hmm. while my sister and I were in the other room. I mean, that was hard for a lot of reasons, uh, particularly because, um, you know, my dad had schizophrenia, which as kids we didn't know. I only found out later as an adult that he had schizophrenia. And so then, in hindsight, a lot of weird things that he had done had made sense like you know there were times I would hear him on the phone and I would go and pick up the other phone and he was just having a conversation with no one and and um and he was always really paranoid and and quite you know violent and scary and um I always just thought that was because he was drunk because he was an alcoholic but it turned out he you know he had pretty severe schizophrenia and um and writing that chapter not just you know the graphic abuse of it, but also having to realise those things about my dad was particularly difficult. And also because, you know, I had PTSD in my early 20s and I spent a really long time um, learning how to deal with that, that's post-traumatic stress disorder, um, because of my childhood. And a a big part of post-traumatic stress disorder is having um, intense and very invasive memories and very vivid memories that are very intrusive. Um, in your brain and um, I had worked really hard to um, combat that and to, um, and to live my life around those memories and to, and to stop that from happening and then I had to em- embrace that. Yeah. I basically had to embrace the worst symptoms of my PTSD to, in order to write some of these really difficult chapters so that was hard and that's why... You know, the book I took... Because I was working at Mamma Mia where you have like hourly deadlines when I... Um, was shopping my book proposal around to publishers. I was like, oh, I can write this in a month. I'm an online writer. Like, this will be really fast. And so I had a two-month deadline for this book, and it ended up taking seven months. Right. Um, and I pretty much ended up in a, in a blanket fort 
in my living room, okay. just freaking out. Yeah. Were you sort of in your own head when you were doing it or were you talking to your siblings and, and other people? Um, you know, I was very much in my own head. I tend to not really talk a lot about the, cre the creative stuff I'm doing and writing. I did... Um, my sisters were the only people who saw chapters from the book um, uh, beforehand, besides my publisher, and she barely saw chapters. She'll tell you I'm a nightmare to work with. I just <laughs> missed every deadline. Um, but um, I would send them... I sent them the chapters that they were in just so they could read them and make sure they were okay with them. Um, but other than that, yeah, it was mostly... It was mostly me, and it was hard. Yeah, yeah. it was really hard. Wow. Yeah. In the book, you say your old sister, Rhiannon, yep. was the, the glamorous, near-perfect child. Is yeah. Rhiannon down there? Or? Yeah, there she is in black right there. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Wave to everyone. She's really shy. She's like dying inside right now. I know. <laughs> Sorry, Rhiannon. Um, and you say that you were sort of the, the nerdy kind of... The goof. The goof. Yeah. Um, how do you guys get along these days? Hater, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're best friends. I mean, my sisters and I, as my youngest, my two youngest sisters, Taylor and um, Isabella, are there too. Um, you know, we had to rely on each other. We, we didn't have stable parents and, and we were split up. We were split up from Bella for an especially long time because she went to live with her dad. Yeah. Um, you went when you were, what, three? And then I don't think I saw you again until you were about 13. So there was about 10 years where we didn't see Bella and we've... Um, we just had to be each other's family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as kids, we hated each other. It's funny, there was... Um, the, the, a lawyer has to check your book before, you, before it gets published just to flag anything. And there were two things in my book that got flagged. One was a story about some dude's penis. And... Um, <laughs> And the other, was, the other thing was that I said that when I was younger, I thought that Rhiannon would either grow up to be a sociopathic serial killer um, or, like, a CEO. <laughs> and they were like, I don't know, is she going to, like, maybe check that with her? And she just thought it was really hilarious. So, like, um, so yeah, but, I mean, we were kids, and, but we love each other now. I mean, my sisters are my best, my best friends and my family, for cool. sure. You say that you've um, come to a point where you've forgiven your parents. Yeah. How hard was it to get to that state of mind? Um, you know, it, was, it took a long time. It took a lot of therapy. I think also um, having my own struggles with PTSD and then, you know, I, I mentioned in the book that I had my own... Um, suicide attempts and I think having my own mental health struggles gave me a lot of empathy for how hard it would have been for them particularly my mum I mean for a long time I was I was really angry with her that you know we were taken away and sent back and taken away and sent back and then eventually we were taken away and she just didn't try to get us back and and we we went to live with other people forever and um and for a long time I was really angry that she didn't try harder but then, you know, as I got older and, and, and had my own struggles, I sort of realised I can't believe she tried as hard as she did. Like, okay. I really think that. And um, I, like, I'm so proud that, that she's my mum. And um, if she figured out how to work the computer, she's probably watching at home. Um, but I, I'm so proud at how hard she tried. I really am. And she struggles with mental health to this day. Um, and she's there for us. 
I think in the only way she knows how, she tries to be there for us. Um, but honestly, I think that's the best she, she could offer. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know school was a bit rough. Yeah. Um, you say in here, school is like prison. Lone drifters are weak and vulnerable to attacks. Yeah. How do you think we can create safer spaces at schools for vulnerable kids? Um, bullying needs to be taken seriously. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I didn't have any bullying experiences in school until I went to um, a very snooty boarding school in years 10, 11 and 12 when my uncle um, was generous enough to pay for me to go there because I was smart and um, he wanted to help me. Um, and so I was only ever bullied at this one school, um, which for legal reasons in the book I wasn't allowed to mention, but it's a co-ed boarding school on the North Shore, so just Google it. Um, <laughs> um, and the thing is, with that bullying, I was so vocal about it. Like, I wasn't one of those kids who suffered in silence. Um, I really spoke up, I, I was so angry that I was, you know, my right to exist and to be at this school. I thought this school was going to be my saviour, like I thought finally I was going to have a safe place to go where I wouldn't have to worry about drunk parents and, and, and trauma and, and inconsistency and then I got there and I was just, like, I, I refer to it in the book as being hunted, like I just felt hunted every day for three years and... Um, and I told everyone, I told, you know, people in the boarding house, I told, like, teachers in the day school, I told the counsellor, I told everyone, and nothing was ever done. They just didn't take me seriously. And that was, um, that was almost as frustrating and almost filled me with as much despair as the bullying itself. Yeah, it's horrible. Mm. Um, in the book, at the very beginning, you, you start with, um, I think, giving advice to your unborn self. Yeah. <laughs> which I, I really love that introduction. And, and you say that things will get worse before they get better. Yeah. Um, how would that advice have helped you as a kid if someone had have told you that? Oh, my God. It would have been invaluable. I think, though, the thing is, as a kid, you don't... I wouldn't have listened. I wouldn't <laughs> have believed it. Yeah, like, I think, you know, I would love to be able to go back in time and tell myself to like give less fucks and, and to not be so hung up on what people think of me and, 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 and but I just, I don't think I would have listened. But I think if I could tell myself that, you know, I'd end up sitting on this stage and, and, and that I would eventually be okay and not wake up and live every day, you know, terrified and, and I would call it in the book toxic butterflies, like I had really bad anxiety as a kid. Maybe that'd be a little glimmer of, glimmer of hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did fantasise about winning Oscars all the time. This is, this is pretty. This is pretty. I think close. you're on the this right track yeah. now. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you're super prolific on social media, and we, we heard a little bit about about that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of hate on social media. Mm. Like, there's a lot of dickheads and trolls just waiting to cut people down. Yeah. But there's also a lot of positivity. Yeah. And, and what I found as a chick is that there's often a lot of other girls out there feeling the same as you and you kind of mm. get a, a bit of a sense of that collective, hell yeah, we're in this together. Mm. That, I, I get that. Yeah. What are some of the more positive um, experiences you've had on social media? Oh my gosh, I have a really good one actually. Um, 
I'm, I'm not really active on Twitter anymore because Twitter has just kind of turned into this cesspool of hate. And I find it's just online writers like talking about how much they hate other online writers. And so I just blocked them all, which drove them crazy because I think a lot of them hate me. But um, Twitter, I'm not on often. But when I used to be on it a lot, um, I remember once I went to a doctor just to get a prescription for the pill. Like, I literally walked in there. I just was like, I need to, like, get a prescription. I know what I need. Thank you very much. And this doctor um, then gave me, like, a 10-minute lecture about being fat and about, you know, she was basically concern trolling me, having no idea of what my history is, like, the fact that, you know, I've, I've had eating disorders and despite what I may look like on the outside, like, I'm actually the healthiest physically and mentally that I've ever been. And... Um, and I just felt so fat-shamed and so upset, and I was crying, and I went to the bathroom afterwards, um, and I just tweeted, like, I just got fat-shamed by, by this doctor, like, I can't even believe it, I can't remember what I said, and I just got flooded with supportive tweets from people. Um, and it's often, you know, probably I assume a lot of people in this room, if you follow me on social media, like, I've been known to get upset and post some emotional stuff at <laughs> 12 o'clock at night when I may have had a few bevies. Um, and the, the support and the flood of just um, love from people who you don't even know and who are being so generous with their time and their support considering you've never met in real life. I mean, that, I think, can be the really positive part of social media. Like, those are the kind of... Those are the kind of lights at the end of the very murky, trolley tunnels. Yep. Yeah. I reckon we might um, get a few questions from the audience next. So you've got to come down to the microphones and talk into the microphone, and I'll kind of point this way and that way. Um, so have a think about your questions and come on down. And while you're doing that, what else are you up to? What have you got on the agenda for this year? Oh my gosh, so much. So um, I'm doing a show at the um, Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I'm really scared. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not so much stand-up, because I'm scared to call myself a comedian, because I'm, I'm not a comedian, but it's, it's kind of like storytelling, and there's some serious stories in there, and that way I figure like if it's not funny, I can be like, well, it wasn't meant to be funny. Like, <laughs> um, but we're hopefully we'll take that show um, national, so it will come to Sydney, so please all buy tickets if it comes here. Um, and then there's like also some TV stuff on the agenda, which I'm like never meant to talk about, but I get really excited, <laughs> and I always talk about it. Um, yeah, and then also... My second book is due to the publisher in October, so I'm working on that as well. Yeah. Great. Right, plenty to look forward to. Yeah, lots to look forward to. Cool. Um, yes, please ask your Hi. question. Hi, Lizzie. Um, I just want to tell you first that you should be very proud of what you're doing for yourself because your future will thank you very much. Oh, thank you. You have all the, the most of the women in this room are probably your age, a little bit older. You have women like me, who is 56, admiring you, because there are so many layers in what you do, in your words, in your sentences that you, know, you can read on the surface and you can read a lot deep down. The question I want to ask you, unfortunately for you, for your family, you experience a lot of bad things, mm. and you were the part of the system that this country has to look after unfortunate families. Um, I would like to know, because we are all here to do more for ourselves and make this society better. That's why we are here today. I would like to know, what is your opinion? 
what this country, what we all have to do so families like yours can be looked after better and don't have experiences or, you know, they'll have the less impact than what had on yours? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. I get asked this question a lot um, because I think there aren't a lot of kids who have, who have been, you know, in the foster system or in the community service system who are now sort of in the public eye. Um, and so I do get asked this question a lot. And I find it difficult to answer. Um, I mean, the one thing I can say is that my sisters and I did not have a good experience with foster parents. Um, my younger sister, Taylor, was in countless foster homes, none of which she had a positive experience in. Um, so I would say, if you can, if you have the capacity, foster kids, because um, there needs to be more good quality foster families out there. <laughs> we desperately needed it, and we, we, didn't, we didn't find it, we didn't have it. Um, yeah, foster kids. Just do it. Look into it and do it. There's a shortage of those families. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for that question. Oh, we have oh, a, another question Hi. over here. Um, I've got a really superficial question. Okay. But if you could choose the next Bachelor, it doesn't have to be from... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, potentially from the last Bachelor. Um, bachelorette, sorry. But if you could choose the next Bachelor, who would it be? <laughs> um, I'd want a gay Bachelor. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, God, who's like an eligible single gay dude who'd be a great bachelor? Joel Creasy? He's really funny. Is he single? Mm. Yeah. Let's. No other country has has had like an LGBTQI bachelor series. Let's do that. Let's let's be the Good first. Call. Yeah. Go for it. Uh, thank you, Rosie. Inspirational. I only wished I had my daughters with me. Um, reconnecting with your siblings, what yeah. do you think between the times of those separations and with so many people, and I consider like the stolen children, what was the key to reconnecting with the siblings? Because you obviously have such a great relationship now. So how did that come about? Um, how did that come? Well... <laughs> They're all looking at me like you're on your own. Um, <laughs> you know, I think we just, we were, all, we had no choice. We were always each, oh, you went, oh, there you are. We were always each other's family. Um, we had no other choice. If we wanted a family, it, it had to be each other. That was it. Um, we've all, you know, done little things for each other, like kept each other's baby photos and, you know, because our parents were useless. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff, we just... I can't imagine not having been connected with these girls for my whole life, and that's what, you know, as soon as I could find Bella and be connected with her after all that time, like, we were all so excited to have found Bella and to bring her into our fold, and, and I always wish I could have done a lot more for Taylor when she um, was in the foster system and I was sent to boarding school. But now, you know, as adults... Um, We've been able to, to really um, just solidify our, our relationship as a family unit. And, um, and 
I think it's just because that's it. We have each other, and that's it. Beautiful. So how could we not? Yeah, lovely. Over here. Um, yeah, um, I know you said that you're not a comedian, but I kind of wanted to ask you about that because you're funny, um, and I feel like um, often, well, I found that like often women are kind of discouraged from being funny, so I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts about that. Or it's like not really seen as like a, a positive... Quality. Yeah, oh no, I don't have a problem with calling myself funny. I mean, I, I hesitate to use the word comedian because I know comedians, I, I, I mean a stand-up comedian, and they work incredibly hard and, and for a long time to, you know, have the right to call themselves that. So I don't just want to like turn up to the Melbourne Comedy Festival and be like, I'm a stand-up just <laughs> like you, and like I've never done it. Like, um, I think, um, but no, I'm absolutely happy to say that, you know, I'm a funny, funny bitch, and, um, <laughs> yeah, and I think it, um, you know, as a straight girl, I think it often makes a lot of guys uncomfortable, I have had that experience that it's made a lot of guys uncomfortable, but, like, I'm just, I'm always going to be funnier than you, like, just deal, like, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> just don't be afraid to be funny. Like, just, you know, I think it was, um, I think it was either Amy Poehler or maybe Tina Fey who said, just do your thing and don't care if they like it, <laughs> says the girl who just admitted that she really often cares if people like it. But, I mean, just aim for that. I try, I try to just do my thing and, and not care. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, sure. Hello. Hello, hello. Um, I, my question is, being here at this festival, it's about women supporting other women and mm -hmm. being there for each other. Um, from the history you had with your family and now being on quite a successful path that you're on now, were there any female mentors or people in your life that kind of put you on that track or did you find it within yourself? No, absolutely. There were people who stepped in all all the way through, I mean, I don't think survival kind of happens in a vacuum. I mean, first of all, it was my sisters um, who were really there for me. And then um, career-wise, it was absolutely 100% Mia Friedman and Jamila Rizvi at Mamma Mia, who, you know, I was at a point where I was just sitting alone in my room and I'd finished studying and I felt kind of lost and worthless and I just started tentatively sending them a few little pieces and they spotted that I had something and they kind of took me into their fold and, and gave me this job and really nurtured not only my career but me as a person because I was so nervous to kind of enter the world and Mia and Jamila at Mamma Mia really played a huge part in, um, in setting me on the path to you know, me sitting right here. Absolutely. That's good. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And it's amazing oh. you had people who believed in you. And did yeah, that. they did. It was, so, it was really, I, I will love those two women forever. It was really important to me that they did that. And, you know, I'm not at Mamma Mia. I mean, I'm freelance now, so I'm not in the office really anymore. But um, I will always, like, treasure the friendship that I have with those women and be thankful for the um, opportunity that they gave me. For sure. It was such a that was such a turning point for you. It was it? Like, a huge turning point. Yeah, I um, I didn't know what to do. Like I even I studied teaching for like three weeks um, <laughs> because I just I'd finished my I'd been at drama school for three years and then I did creative writing for three years and now I was like okay well I've studied long enough to be a doctor and I'm qualified to do nothing <laughs> and um, and so I just sort of 
started a blog and um, and then it kind of got a bit popular and then Mia and Jamili gave me a job and um, and then one day I said, hey, how about I write about The Bachelor? And they said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just started doing that at home on my own and, um, and then that got popular and, you know, for better or worse, uh, Writing about The Bachelor got me a book deal. <laughs> so, Why do you think your, your Batchy recap struck a chord with people? Um, you know, I think it was because um, it, it made people feel smart for watching something dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I tried to... There, it, there was something for everything in, for everyone in there. I mean, there's jokes about Oshie's hair and, you know, the goddess queen Sandra Sully and, and there's, like, fantasy and all that kind of stuff. But um, there's also, you know, I sneak in a bit of feminist critique. Um, and I also think they're not mean. Like, I, I make it a point to never be nasty, to never comment on anyone's physical appearance. Like, it's... Except for Osha's hair, obviously. Um, <laughs> and the bachelor's muscles, which they always have. But um, <laughs> I, 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 it's really important to me that I comment only on how things have been edited, you know. So if, if someone has clearly been edited to be the villain, I'll say, wow, the producers are really making this person out to be the villain. Like, it never gets personal... Um, and it just, it gives you an excuse to watch something really silly, um, but sort of also wink at it at the same time. <laughs> it's okay that I'm watching it, because, like, I read Rosie's recaps. So. <laughs> Look, I think we're, um, we're just about yeah. out of time. I went fast. I've been, <laughs> I've been so nervous, and now I'm like, let's stay. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't have to be anywhere. <laughs>